the lessons I learned that number one, it's not what you buy, it's what you pay for it that determines whether you'll be successful or, or not. And number two, successful investing is not a matter of buying good things, it's a matter of buying things well. Hello everyone, I'm Max Richardson from Investec Wealth and Investment in the UK and welcome to the latest in the Investec webcast series, Markets and Investment in Times of COVID-19. For over 50 years, investors have coalesced into two distinct groups. Each has strong opinions about their style of investment, how successful it has been, and each tends to look down on the other. The false dichotomy of value and growth investing has a rich history and has become an emotive topic, not just because both have had long periods of outperformance over the other, but because the outperformance of the growth investment style has never been as extreme as it became towards the end of 2020. COVID-19 supercharged the pandemic winners, many of which are found in the internet economy, and we effectively skipped a decade of digitization overnight. But are they mutually exclusive? Can fast-growing companies represent great value and are all cheap stocks a bargain? Does the rivalry between value and growth investors mask a more profound change occurring in the investment world? What should investors have in their toolbox for the internet economy? Impartial opinion on this subject is hard to come by since many of the commentators identify with one of the two investment styles. So when Howard Marks released his latest memo in mid-January called Something of Value, covering this precise subject, we thought speaking to him too good an opportunity to miss. Howard's long-standing relationship with Warren Buffett, one of the first true value investors, and his lockdown conversations with his son, Andrew, a successful growth investor, as well as his engaging writing and speaking style, place him perfectly for this conversation. Howard, welcome. Thank you, Max. It's great to be with you. So much to talk about and, and so little time. Uh, we've had a number of brilliant conversations in the last few years and covered some really interesting ground about cycles, market history, investor behavior. And I think today's chat is going to be super engaging too. The goal today, as ever, is to challenge the status quo and provide our audience with a fresh perspective. But before we dive into our main conversation, it seems remiss of me not to mention the change in leadership in the US this past week. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on the mood in America at the moment and how the US fiscal landscape might shift under Joe Biden's administration. Well, Max, I would say that the mood in America is very positive. Um, our economy is on a good footing, although the current surge in COVID will make the first quarter a, different one, a difficult one and maybe the second. Um, I think that worries under President Trump um, culminating in his uh, disputing the election outcome and in the uh, invasion of the Capitol building uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, has, I think that those tensions are abating uh, under Joe Biden, who uh, is likely to have a, a, a more efficient technocrat uh, experience, knowledge, science uh, oriented administration uh, he, and likely to be bipartisan in nature if he can. Uh, I'm sure that he uh, wants to uh, uh, calm the worries and uh, act in a bipartisan centrist way. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether the Republican Party uh, will go along with that. The Democrat 
majority in both houses of Congress is uh, minimal. Uh, and so uh, they won't be able to get things done uh, based on uh, uh, brute force. Uh, it'll have to be a matter of compromise uh, if, if things are gonna get done. Uh, we, we'll see how cooperative the Republicans are in that effort. Uh, but uh, I, th I would say that the, uh, the optimism is high, but guarded. Um, the economy is likely to be quite strong for the year. And this is like to, likely to be the beginning of a multi-year uh, recovery. So that's a great positive. Uh, the Biden administration being uh, uh, democratic and, and somewhat influenced by the far left is likely to be uh, more stimulative than a Trump uh, administration would have been, although uh, probably not as pro-business. Uh, but I think that the outlook is positive and the mood is high here. No, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. And, and obviously, with, as you mentioned, such a, 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 a razor thin majority in both houses, it'll be interesting to see the priorities that they, that the, or the prioritization they put on um, their various agendas. And it was great to see, um, certainly from my perspective, the, the, and I think from a global perspective, the US rejoining the Paris Climate Accord last week as well. I'd like to add that the greatest worry in the business community with regard to a Biden administration uh, was the possibility that if the Democrats controlled the Senate and the House and the White House, uh, they would implement a leftist uh, program of uh, uh, redistribution and of business uh, regulation. Um, I think that the fact that of the narrow uh, margins uh, has uh, eased that concern. And that's one part reason for the stock market's positive behavior. Uh, on balance uh, in the two and a half months since the election. Very true, very true. So, I mean, much, much to anticipate this year, and we, we certainly look forward to see what the developments will be in the stock market. Um, so let's dive into the, 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 the conversation that I outlined earlier on. Um, as I said, I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. But let's begin with some context. You wrote about the dominance of the value investing style for much of the post-war period. Can you describe the history of the growth and value investment styles and introduce some of the main characters in this fascinating story? Well, if you go back 100 years to 1920, uh, I would say that there was no such thing as an investing style. Now, I may be uh, wrong. Uh, I wasn't alive at the time. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't hear about there having been investing styles. Uh, there were some styles of uh, uh, manipulation of the market uh, and so forth. Uh, and uh, Wall Street wasn't uh, uh, regulated. So it was uh, pretty much the Wild West. But I don't think there were investing styles. Uh, the first style that came along uh, is was uh, what is now called uh, uh, value investing. And uh, I would say it was started in the probably around the 1950. Uh, by Ben Graham. And, and Ben Graham was uh, Warren Buffett's teacher at Columbia and uh, uh, an early uh, fund manager. And uh, he practiced uh, what we now call value investing. I don't think he called it value investing. Uh, Warren Buffett calls uh, uh, Graham style uh, of investing, which Buffett adapted uh, in his early days, uh, cigar butt investing. In other words, he looked for castaways, castoffs that uh, one would find in the gutter. Uh, cigars that maybe had a puff or two left in them that he could pick up for nothing. Uh, and that was, that was the style at the time. 
um, you have to understand that this was a, a, what I would call a dumb environment. Uh, there was no data. There was no computers. There were no spreadsheets, uh, no screening programs. Uh, if you wanted to get information on, uh, on a company, you would have to write to the company and ask for their annual report, and they would have to send it back uh, once it went through their administrative process, all of which took a lot of time. Or you could look through uh, publications, dense publications that had data on companies, uh, which most people did not bother to co uh, consult. And so somebody like um, Graham or Buffett could find uh, uh, little known situations uh, where they could uh, really scoop up uh, incredible bargains because of other people's ignorance. Um, uh, Graham was very successful at that. Buffett uh, did that, but then segued uh, uh, under, uh, because of his connection and from based on the advice from Charlie Munger to um, what we all call now, uh, what he calls great companies at fair prices. So uh, again, value is not uh, immutable, but uh, over, the, over time, uh, I should say that in the 60s, uh, there arose something which is now considered the polar opposite, which is called growth investing. And growth investing uh, was the, considered the, to be the uh, investing in great companies, fast growing companies, which sell expensively, but are worth it. And uh, that grew into something called the Nifty 50. And in the late 60s, by the time that I joined uh, the business in 1969, or my first summer job in the business in 1968, uh, the banks, which were the main investors of the time, uh, practiced, many of them practiced Nifty 50 investing. The 50 greatest and fastest growing companies, companies that were so wonderful that A, nothing bad could happen, and number two, so wonderful that there was no price too high. And as a consequence, they sold at extremely high uh, prices, mainly expressed as PE ratios, price to earnings ratios. The normal PE ratio since World War II has been 16 times earnings. And many of the Nifty 50 uh, sold at a multiple of 16, uh, 30, 50, 70 times earnings, some cases 90 times earnings, but of course it was worth it because they were such great companies. Well, if you bought them the day I started work in 1969, and if you held them for five years, you lost almost all your money in the greatest companies in America because the stock market roughly halved and the, uh, the Nifty 50 did even worse because they fell from their elevated valuations. But anyway, um, th there arose this dichotomy that you discuss uh, between a growth and value, and it persists to this day, and it is the main organizing principle in the, the equity management business. And people say, I'm a growth manager, or I'm a value manager. And growth is basically thought of as great companies rapidly growing. Primarily, that means technology and biotech, albeit at high valuations, or prosaic, slow-growing companies bought cheaply, which means low valuations. And uh, as you say, and as even Buffett would say, as I quote him 
in, in the memo. Uh, I think it's a, an artificial um, uh, dichotomy used to organize the equity management business. Um, and I think, uh, as you say, not useful. Indeed. I mean, I think really you could describe them both as being two sides of one coin, basically, value and growth. We're both trying to achieve the same thing, which is to exploit an expectations gap between market expectations and what companies might actually achieve. And, 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 and that's a great context setting, actually. It's, it, the 50s were a real turning point. Because, but before that, market movements, I think, were dominated really by speculation. And you had you know, the, the, the famous book of Jesse Livermore and Reminiscence of a, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, which was really the kind of the, the founding uh, investing book before security analysis came along. And of course, Ben Graham um, and Buffett then sort of championed this, this whole idea. Um, but there's a great story in your memo, which I hadn't come across before, about Warren Buffett and the National Fire Insurance Company. Can you just tell us about that story? Because you know about it. Well, uh, as I understand it, uh, national insurance was an example of the cigar butts that I described. Uh, you know, Buffett uh, being uh, what, what today you would call a nerd, uh, you know, would sit in his uh, back porch in Omaha and leap through Moody, what we call Moody's Manual. It was a big publication. It was about this thick and it consisted uh, of thousands of pages of very, very thin paper, thousands of pages of paper uh, with the financials and a description of every public company. And of course, uh, you know, very few people, only, only the nerds uh, would, would read it. And, and uh, uh, that would leave uh, tremendous bargains for the people who would go to the trouble. So, uh, you know, Buffett read about something called national insurance uh, and uh, it had been sold to uh, rural investors um, uh, years before uh, uh, by promoters uh, who probably bought it for 10 cents and sold it to people for a buck. And Buffett would drive around and meet with farmers on their porch. Uh, they, they probably forgot that they had it and they would dig it out and they would sell it to him for uh, what he thought was too low a price. And he would pay him in cash on the porch. Uh, and he made a lot of money with it. But that's just one example of, uh, of how people found and, and bought cigar butts. That, that's a great story, the, the, the National Insurance Company story, one that I hadn't come across before and just shows the power of that cigar butt theory. You mentioned the Nifty 50 and, and that, that was a period of, phenomenal returns and, and uh, a marked period in stock market history. What lessons did you learn from that period? But more importantly, what shouldn't we be careful about applying those lessons perhaps to growth companies today? Number one, uh, it was a very educational experience for me. Uh, as I said, it was the experience of my first 10 plus years in the business. And as I said, if you bought the and held the stocks of the best 50 companies in America, you lost almost all your money in a very short time. Um, and in 1978, because I was part of the effort uh, that invested in the Nifty 50, uh, I, I came, I would think, I would imagine I should have come close to losing my job, but rather I was asked to start portfolios in convertible bonds and high yield bonds, uh, which worked out uh, very good and, and is the core of Oak Tree. Um, 
but uh, now I'm buying the securities of the worst public companies in America, making a lot of money safely and steadily. So the lessons I learned that number one, it's not what you buy, it's what you pay for it that determines whether you'll be successful or, or not. And number two, successful investing is not a matter of buying good things, it's a matter of buying things well. And I think that's a very important distinction, which has guided the rest of my career. And I guess uh, you, A, you only learn uh, lessons from failure. You don't learn much from success. And B, it's great if you learn those lessons early in your career uh, so that they can have a positive influence on your career. But, uh, you know, that, that was the lesson of the Nifty 50. But there are many other lessons to be learned. Number one, a great example of the Nifty 50 was Coca-Cola. Uh, a, a terrific company. And uh, it, it, uh, it was one of the companies that lost most of its value between uh, mid-1972 and the end of 74. Uh, it was another company that had been uh, highly valued and uh, fell to earth. But another important lesson is that Warren Buffett, the high priest of so-called value investing, uh, is perhaps best known for his investment in Coca-Cola which certainly was not a cigar, but it was certainly, um, when he bought it, uh, a great company at a fair price. And, uh, you know, for the, for the uh, even if you bought it at the high in 72, if you held it for the next 26 years, you made a double digit return for 26 years. And if you can compound your money at a double digit return for 26 years, uh, you made a lot of money, and Buffett did. And that's one of the stories that, uh, that is uh, responsible for his success. So that's, I think that's another important lesson. Buffett was not dogmatic about it. He, he says, we don't practice uh, uh, something called growth investing or something called value investing. He didn't make that dichotomy, and I think others shouldn't uh, either. Uh, it's a great example, actually, of the adaptability of, of Buffett's investment style, basically, that he adapted from cigar butt to moat investing, as he, 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 he in longer terms coined that phrase. And one of his, one of his most successful investments was in Amazon, uh, which uh, nobody would call a value investing, uh, but I think he saw good value there. That's true. Well, I mean, Amazon and Apple, I think, both feature in the Berkshire portfolio now, and he, it was about opportunity. Cigar butts with the opportunity immediately post-war. Then it became moat investing. And I guess that coincided then with the, you know, the, 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 the downward trajectory, certainly from the late 1980s, early 90s in, in interest rates, which, which perhaps helped that style of, of investment. So I think it's important that we kind of can contrast what the investment world was like between the late 1960s and, and now. I mean, back then, investment professionals were relatively rare and I think probably earned the same as many other professions uh, at the time. Uh, a lack of information and analytical tools meant that bargains were painful, i.e. markets were mostly inefficient, uh, and Buffett was a relative nobody. Today, of course, Warren Buffett is a celebrity. Tens of trillions of dollars are managed professionally. We have lightning quick computing power that allows vast amounts of data to be analysed instant instantaneously. Investment careers are very desirable and markets are, um, are, are efficient uh, and certainly very competitive. Um, how has this 
how has how has that change really contributed to the change in opportunity for investors and the evolution of investment investment styles? You wrote about this in the in the memo. Well, I think Max, that you uh, recap the broadly uh, the significant changes that have taken place. Uh, first, from 1920, a disorganized uh, industry. Uh, 1960, uh, what we call an inefficient world, which means to say, uh, you know, not systematically uh, studied. Uh, and consequently, you could steal things uh, like uh, uh, national insurance. And I say that uh, figuratively speaking, Buffett didn't really steal it. He just bought it uh, uh, laughably cheap. Two, today, when the industry is organized, populated. Uh, I mean, when I was getting out of school, graduate school 50 years ago, I, I, I applied for six different jobs in six different industries, only one of which was investment management. And they all offered the same salary, uh, $12,000 to $14,000. And that wasn't a month. Um, but uh, today, as you say, uh, careers in investing are highly sought after. And we think of the uh, industry is much more efficient. Certainly, uh, it, it's it, one shouldn't think that 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 there is that based on uh, publicly available information, it's possible to get extreme bargains like uh, Graham and Buffett did. Rather, uh, I think it's reasonable to think that if things are available at extremely low valuations, there's probably a good reason. They probably deserve it. And if things are expensive, they're probably a good reason for that too. Uh, uh, they merit it. And so, uh, you know, I think that uh, the thought that you can study publicly information about the present, that you can study publicly information about the present and get rich from that is probably uh, ill-conceived. What that means is that if, if, if the study of publicly available quantitative information is not going to be very profitable, then to be extremely successful as an investor, you have to either deal with qualitative information about the present, the, the quality of a company's uh, employees, engineers, thought process, product development uh, 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 capability, uh, distribution capability, or guesses about the future, or both. Mere processing of quantitative information, uh, which is currently available to everyone, is not going to produce uh, exceptional results. Yeah, in, indeed. I mean, this is, this is an area that I want to explore with you, this friction, if you like, or the opportunity between quantitative and qualitative uh, analysis and uh, you mentioned this in the memo it's a great way of putting it that in the past a company's assets resided on the balance sheet and these days some of the best company assets go home every night to their families and there's been this this shift obviously from sort of tangible to to, to intangible assets um, and you you wrote about the difficulty of attaining edge using quantitative techniques in efficient markets how does our investment toolbox need to evolve to create competitive advantage as investors these days? So, for example, um, it's quite clear that we should place, from your writing, that we should place more emphasis on qualitative judgment now. 
But specifically, one of the areas that you didn't explore in the memo was sustainability. And I wonder how your thought processes might have evolved in relation to qualitative judgment and sustainability in the future, because you mentioned complex, the world becoming ever more complex, and this whole world of ESG and sustainability seems to add a a whole new universe, if you like, of complexity to that uh, process. Well, certainly, when you have to uh, deal with uh, qualitative information and, and estimates of the future, it's much harder to be to reach a confident uh, uh, and correct judgment than if you're dealing with qual- quantitative information about the present. Um, if you say to a hundred investors, uh, "Tell me about XYZ's current uh, financials and and operations," they'll all use the same facts, data. And they'll all uh, probably reach conclusions that vary very little. But if you say, tell me about uh, company ABC's product capabilities and what they're going to earn 10 years from now, you'll get a much wider range of of, uh, opinions. And the difference between being right and being wrong will be much bigger. And that difference of opinion create scope for big wins and big losses. So it's a very different world. One of the things that makes the future uh, more uncertain is ESG, impact investing, sustainability issues. Uh, Which companies uh, can contribute to the well-being of the world 10 or 20 years from now, which industries will come under a cloud, which industries will be disrupted and uh, extinguished uh, because they're not relevant to the future. Uh, This is a very important decision and uh, not made as easily as the question of what the current finances are. Um, It's just one example of the things we have to consider. And it's obviously very new. Nobody thought about these things uh, 20 or 30 years ago. By the way, it's not such an easy decision either. Uh, the, the results are never clear cut. Um, I can tell you, for example, that I saw a study of the performance of, uh, I think it was probably the Dow, could have been the S&P, but either the S&P or the Dow, in the uh, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, a study that was done early this century. And they looked at all the companies in the index and they said which ones grew at 15 percent or more uh, or returned 15 percent or more in each decade and there were only a few companies that grew at uh, that returned 15 percent in each decade there was only one that returned 15 percent for all three decades and it was philip morris a a cigarette company which was certainly the least uh socially responsible uh, of all and the most successful. So, you know, we're going to try, the uh, the investment industry is going to try to emphasize the companies that will be best for society. There's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation uh, to an investment success. So what we have to figure out is not which are the best companies for society, but which are the good companies that will uh, have good returns. 
I think that's right. The, the financial industry sits at this hugely important and pivotal place in terms of the future of uh, our planet and indeed uh, environmental, social and governance concerns and the way that we act in the coming decades will have a profound effect. But the impact on uh, the actual returns that can be gathered, I think, will be more nuanced perhaps than picking. But I think importantly, importantly, clients are asking us these days to harmonize thinking about social responsibility and sustainability with thinking about investment returns. Uh, many of our clients tell us to uh, consider both. Very sensible, very sensible indeed. I, I, I want to turn back to the internet uh, companies because the, the internet stocks seem to be characterized by strong network effects, high margins, again, you wrote about this in the memo, high margins on incremental sales and fast, low friction growth in truly global markets, um, leading to things like um, increasing returns to scale, which again, you mentioned um, Brian Arthur in his work in your memo. So I'm going to mention a, a value investing phrase here, which has become almost like religion to most true value investors, which of course is reversion to the mean. Can we rely on reversion to, me, to the mean to predict the future of a stock or industry in this ever-changing world characterized by those uh, points I just made? And what's the mindset, the cru crucially, what's the mindset that will be successful in the coming decades? Max, when I was a young man, the world felt like an unchanging place. The world didn't change much from year to year, not that much from decade to decade. It felt like the, the uh, environment was a stage set in a play, stable, static, not changing. And, and changes in companies and economic and market cycles played out in front of that backdrop. Today, the world changes every day. And the companies that were successful 10 years ago, many are not successful today, Many of the companies that are successful today didn't exist 10 years ago. And this is a great change. And we, we can't ignore this. We have to uh, factor it in. Uh, we have to change. Uh, in addition, as you said, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, the old companies were uh, capital intensive and asset intensive. They produced a physical product and they produced it in a physical setting of factories and equipment, which was expensive. And so if they were gonna expand, double, triple their sales, they had to add double, triple their machinery and have access a lot of money to do so. We've never had companies as profitable as today's with growth potential of today's and with a reliance on code and digitization, engineers, rather than equipment. If a software company develops a desirable uh, app, piece of software, and they produce a hundred, it costs several million. The next hundred costs almost nothing. And the, then the, the hundred after that costs almost nothing. So incremental profitability is extremely high Reliance on assets is extremely low. Uh, just the other day, two days ago, I was looking through uh, charts and I saw a, a chart of the 
uh, ratio of price to book value of the average tech company. And this is one of the things that uh, people looked at. Book value is the net uh, of your balance sheet. It's the assets minus liabilities. And uh, the uh, ratio of price to book value of the tech companies and software companies was extremely high. They, in other words, they looked expensive and a value investor wouldn't buy them because the multiple is so high. But the truth is they don't need assets. So they have few assets and a result, as a result, they have this high ratio of price to assets, but it's meaningless because their potential profitability is not asset-based. It's idea-based, it's code-based. So we, the, the rules of the past, and certainly the rules that constrain the value industry for which low valuation multiples like price to book, price to earnings, price to sales, those ratios are, are the sine qua non of value investing, but not as relevant in the new world. So I think that's a great example of, of how our thinking has to modernize and a great example of what I learned from being cooped up with Andrew uh, for much of the pandemic so far. I, I, I mean, it sounds like being cooped up, as you put it, led to some really interesting conversations. And it was great to be able to get some insight into those conversations. And that's what the, you know, I think that I was maybe even too subtle in naming the memo. That's the something of value. And uh, it's not a pun on value investing. It's the fact that uh, our spending time together was uh, so good for me and so uh, helpful to me in, involving, in evolving my thinking. Yeah, and that came across very much so. We, we, we've talked today about regime change, I guess, if you like, in many different ways, from speculative investing pre-1950s or pre-war to, to, to investing, um, to from um, periods of cigar butts being the opportunity to moat investing and then more latterly technology being, in, being the opportunity. And I think the other big regime change is the one that you just described, of uh, period of long, long periods of stability, which was the post-war period, and now we're in a period of exponential change. And that's for many of the reasons that we know, but largely because of the profound impact of, of the internet. And when you have periods of exponential change, it means that option value or your options, as it were, become more valuable. And there's no way that we could have known, for example, just how successful all the options available to Amazon what they might have been in 1997 and how they might have exploded as it got bigger and bigger and you know, access more, more capital and, and, and more, more knowledge, for example. I, I want to make two points. Uh, the most important is that I'm not saying forget value investing. You have to invest in growth. Forget mundane companies. You have to invest in technology. What I'm saying is you have to be, have an open mind. You have to, consider using all the tools in your toolbox. Uh, it's, I'm not saying that fast growing companies are important and inexpensive companies are unimportant. Anything can be overvalued and thus likely to produce a poor return or undervalued and likely produce a good return. Uh, it's certainly possible for high growing, high, high growth 
tech and biotech companies to be so overpriced that they represent poor investments. Remember, it's not what you buy, it's what you pay for it. And uh, I'm not making a commentary on the current market. I'm not saying that tech, tech stocks are inexpensive or uh, likely to produce high returns or should be bought. What I'm saying is that investors uh, should not rule out uh, things. I mean, there's no reason why a fast growing company can't be good value. Uh, or why a, a low multiple company can't be a good investment. But uh, rather than say which is attractive today, my, my message is that uh, investors should be broad-minded and open-minded. I think that's the key takeaway and certainly something that I, I learned from your memo and, and that, that has come through loud and clear is that th there is this is two sides of one coin and actually keeping an open mind is, is, is absolutely the right way to go about it. There are clearly, you know, polarized camps who talk about this a lot, but um, understanding both points of view is, is probably the, the, the key to success in the future. Yeah. Two final questions from me. The first one about how your thoughts have evolved in relation to financial innovation. You talked about cryptocurrencies briefly in the memo, and, and perhaps we don't need to go into too much detail about those in, in, in particular, but uh, financial innovation throughout history is, has been something that has in, invariably ended in, in disaster. And I'm not asking for you to opine on whether you think crypto will end in disaster, but how has your thought process evolved in respect to financial innovation in these, these ever-changing times? Um, Max, I'm uh, naturally a skeptic. Uh, I think that's the big part of the value investor mentality is to be skeptical about things that are promoted as, as being uh, panaceas. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of my success have been, uh, has come from turning a negative when I thought the environment was too uh, optimistic. My general conclusion uh, and my general experience over my life has been that financial innovation whether it be portfolio insurance in the 80s or uh, mortgage-backed securities in the aughts, uh, uh, noughts, um, is, is only possible in optimistic times because in pessimistic times, people are, won't adopt the new. They adopt it when everything's going well and people are optimistic. And it is because it doesn't have to stand muster scrutiny that much of financial in innovation has ended in tears, as you say. Um, and so uh, my knee-jerk reaction to cryptocurrencies <clears throat> when they first became prominent a few years ago was to be skeptical and uh, uh, to say some uh, categorically negative things about them. And uh, the reason I mentioned them in the memo was because number one, that is an illustration of how we our biases can affect our conclusions. And number two, um, it's clear to me, with Andrew's help, our children help clarify things for us, it's clear that my knee-jerk reaction uh, was based on natural skepticism rather than information. I didn't know that much about them but they seemed to me to be not investable because they didn't have tangible value, which is what a value investor looks for. 
uh, Andrew has uh, taken me through a course of education with regard to cryptocurrencies. And I understand now the case for them, which is based on supply and demand. Demand may grow from investors or from users uh, for these currencies because of their uh, uh, qualities. And the supply is limited by the technology. And an excess of uh, demand over supply can produce a rising price. Well, they don't have tangible value. There's no earnings behind them, no cash flow, no assets. But isn't that true of currencies? Uh, uh, isn't that true of the euro or the dollar? They, the, the dollar used to be backed by gold and silver. Today, of course, it's not backed by anything. Well, why is it the dollar, uh, the, the dollar or, the, or the pound sterling uh, desirable? Because other people accorded value and will accept it in exchange for goods, for example. Well, isn't that true? If that's true of Bitcoin too, if, if it's desirable and acceptable, then Bitcoin may have a role. So uh, I, I've switched from uh, knee-jerk skepticism to trying to understand the other side. I haven't concluded yet whether that makes it a good investment or desirable, uh, in, but or, or whether it justifies the price <clears throat> increase that has taken place or whether it's worth much more uh, than today's price. But um, what I'm talking about here is process and again, open-mindedness. And uh, I think Andrew's most important point is not that X is good or B is bad or J is undesirable. His basic point is that we shouldn't generalize. We shouldn't have a knee-jerk reaction. We shouldn't say that a company is not attractive because the PE is high or that another company is compelling because the price is low. But look at the whole uh, thing based on a deep uh, understanding. Very good. Uh, and of course, all those currencies that you mentioned, we're, we're learning, have learned over the last 10 years that there's almost infinite supply of those. So um, that's a key differentiation. My final, final question is uh, about writing, actually, because you, you write so well about subjects that are not that easy to understand for the average uh, person on the street, but you write them in a way that I think most people would certainly understand and engage with um, very closely. Perhaps you can give us some just some tips and, 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 and perhaps talk us through the process that you went through for your latest memo, which I, I think was perhaps one of your longer ones. You know, how long did that take? Do you, do, you, do you sit down and do it all in one go? What's, what's the process? Um, depending on the urgency, and of course, this one had no urgency. I mean, uh, the one I put out... Uh, uh, if, on, right after Lehman bankruptcy in uh, uh, oh, uh, eight, September 15th, 08, I wrote it, I, I started on a Monday and it was published on Tuesday. But this one, when, I'm there, when there's no urgency, they take a month, three months, what, if they're, if they're uh, uh, academic. Um, this probably took about a month. Uh, and um, uh, Andrew and I worked on it together. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I write a section at a time uh, and stop. I write when I feel like it. I'm not like an author who says he has to write 100 pages every day or something like that, or 100,000 words. Um, I do it because I like it. Uh, I'd rather work than not work. I'd rather write than, than sit in the sun. Um, and uh, 
you know, for me, it's a creative outlet. Uh, I will say that the the response to uh, I'm, I'm now entering my fourth decade of writing the memos. Uh, a lot of people, this one uh, uh, created more response uh, than any other in all the time. And uh, a lot of people wrote that it was, it was the best of all. So that's, that's a great thing for me. Um, and uh, of course, the, the opportunity to work with Andrew on it was that we did it back and forth and iteratively and uh, his contribution was immense. Uh, it was a, that made it uh, the greatest of all for me. Well, as, as you know, I, I've read many of your memos and I certainly found this one to be the most informative. So I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with uh, the sentiments of your, of your other readers that it was, that it was brilliant. Uh, we're immensely grateful for you, um, to you for joining us so soon after writing it as well. You're clearly you know, in high demand for other people wanting to talk about the same, the same, the same points and issues. So, Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, we're proud of and happy with our uh, work with uh, Invest Tech. And uh, so, uh, you know, coming on with you was one of my high priorities. Thank you. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.